June 1999 and March 15th of 2003. These are two of the most important dates in my life. They represent commitments that I made that through those commitments and me holding on to them changed my life forever. The first date, June 1999, that's when I made a commitment to really follow Jesus. I mean, like really actively pursue following Jesus. This was about six months into when Leslie and I were dating and madly in love. I think we have a picture. There we go. Man, I look hot. Well, I'll tell you what, I was madly in love with her. She had actually just dumped me right after that picture. True story. The pain that caused in my life drove me to seek out answers about God, answers about Jesus, answers about baptism and salvation and all of these questions that I had. It was a very important series of events that happened after I was dumped. (laughs) It wasn't fun. It was incredibly difficult. But God was using that pain in my life to get me right where he wanted me to be. To help me become the person that he wanted me to be. 1999, June. That was the first important date in my life. The second equally important date in my life was March 15th of 2003, and that was my wedding day. I didn't stay dumped for long. (laughs) Six months, actually, I was dumped for. But we did get back together, and we did get married. And these commitments that we made to each other on this day, on our wedding day, shaped our lives. Because as I've said before around here, love is more than feelings. Listen, think about that. Love, oh, I love you. Love is more than feelings. And we say that when we're dating or, we're, or we feel, I love you. And I'm saying that because my feelings are telling me to say that. That's not love. That's feelings. And what I'm trying to say is love is so much more than feelings. Love is a commitment to the promise of loving each other. Love is the commitment to the promise that you make on your wedding day of loving each other. That's what love is. Whether you feel it or not, that's what love is. It's a commitment to the promise. Commitments are at the center of all of our relationships. They're what holds our relationships together or what can cause a relationship to crumble apart. If they're broken, many of us here today, we know the pain of a broken commitment. We know the heartache. We are living with some of the aftermath, perhaps, of a broken commitment. And that is why commitments are at the center of our relationship playbook that we've been learning about for the past four weeks. Um, We often are frustrated with our relationships. We want the relationship to change or the person to change, but we realize we can't 
change the other person. But there are some things we can do, and as we've been talking for the last four weeks, we can refresh the relationship playbook. I'm going to run back through as a quick reminder what the relationship playbook is that we've been talking about. It goes like this. It starts with our perspective. This is the way that you see someone, the way you see your friends, your neighbor, your spouse, your coworker, your boss, your kids, even yourself. That's called your perspective. And your perspective always will inform your response. This is the way that we treat each other. The way you see someone will eventually determine the way that you're going to treat them. Think about if that's true in your life. Think about when you're driving down the street and you see someone begging for money. The way you think about them will eventually determine the way that you treat them. And it's true in all of our relationships. Our perspective will inform our response. Our response will eventually inform our words, the words that we use. In other words, what we think about people and how we treat people will eventually determine how we begin to speak to them and what we say about them or what we think and speak to ourselves. Our words will eventually form within our relationships habits. These are the patterns of behavior that we fall into. And all of this is either held together or not by a commitment or a lack of. Can I have a drink? Thank you. Vodka. You can edit that part out of the podcast. (laughs) So today we're going to close this relationship series by talking about our habits and our commitments. Let's do a mass confession. This is not a Catholic church, but we will do a mass confession today. Just go ahead and raise your hand if you have at least one bad habit that you want to get rid of. Go ahead. Just ra- hold it up. Hold up. Everybody. Okay. Now look around the room. Everybody look around the room. Okay. Do you see everyone without their hand raised? Let me tell you what their bad habit is. Lying. All right. But if you did have your hand raised, maybe your bad habit is, I don't know, maybe you bite your fingernails or your toenails. You ever see somebody bite their toenails? I have a kid who does that. Uh, Late night snacking. Um, Oh, always running late. Just point, just point at him. Always running late. Bad habit. Okay. Um, How about watching The Bachelor? Okay, that, or, or how about this bad habit? Always believing that this next year is going to be the year that the Padres are finally going to win. Huh? Bad habits. Bad habits are hard to break. Because our brains are actually wired for habits. These neural pathways that we've been talking about and hearing about how our, our brains actually love habits. They love routine. And ha- that's why habits are difficult to break But habits are not impossible to break. They're difficult to break, but they're actually not impossible to break. We can rewire our brains. It's science. You can rewire your brain and create better auto responses. One of the books that we're recommending in this series is called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. And in the book, he talks about these keystone habits, this idea that if you could do just one 
major thing, it could actually change a whole lot of other things. A keystone habit. Let me read you a little quote from his book. Keystone habits say that success doesn't depend on getting every single thing right, but instead relies on identifying a few key priorities and fashioning them into powerful levers. The habits that matter most are the ones that when they start to shift, dislodge and remake other patterns. Think of it like a log jam. Like you've got this log jam, these logs slowing down a river. They're all stuck. If you can pull just the right one, everything else begins to flow again. And when it comes to our destructive habits, the things holding us back, the things that are causing us not to become the people we desire to be, if we could just pull one of those destructive habits and replace it with something healthy, everything else behind that just might start to become in order and flowing as well. So let me ask a question. What unhealthy keystone habit do you need to break? In your life, not the person next to you's life. What unhealthy keystone habit do you need to break? And you've probably got one. Hang on to that. Don't forget that you thought that that was dropped in your mind or in your heart today. And I'm not saying I dropped it there. I'm saying, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you while I'm talking? Those are two different things. Because God can speak to you directly. He doesn't need me. God can speak to you directly. So what is the one unhealthy keystone habit that if you were to break it, would cause everything else to flow? Let me jump into a couple couple things here on keystone habits and the power to change everything. Here's what I believe is the most important keystone habit anyone can form. It's this. My commitment to Jesus determines every other commitment. If you can make that your keystone habit, my commitment to Jesus determines every other commitment to follow. It will change the way you see yourself. It will change the way you see other people, knowing that God loves you and is for you. It'll change the way that you handle your money. It will uh, help you to better understand your body and your sexuality. The way that you see your work, your career, your co-workers, your boss, all shaped by our commitment or lack of commitment to Jesus. All of those things can hinge upon that commitment. When Jesus is shaping my life more than the world around me is shaping my life, I'm becoming rooted in Christ. And we are all being shaped by commitments and habits that we hold. You are becoming you, and I am becoming me. Because of what we've committed to, because of our habits, you are becoming you, the person you're becoming, and I'm becoming someone too. Can we make sure, can we pause and make sure that we're actually becoming the people that we want to be? And not becoming someone that we never intended to become. That happens all the time. We look back and we say, how did I get here? Or what have I become? We are being shaped and we are being formed. But the good news is we can be intentional about the person that we are becoming. 
Are you happy with the person that you're becoming? Are you happy with the person that you've become? And if the answer is no, there is good news because you can change. Here's a Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26 says, Carefully consider the path for your feet, and all your ways will be established. We've got to think about where we're headed. We've got to be intentional about where we're going and make sure that we're becoming the people that we want to become. The habits that we've developed or failed to develop, the commitments that we hold or have trouble holding, they're all forming and shaping us. I want to show you seven verses from Scripture today that can have an impact on this. So here's some habits for healthy relationships. We're going to pull this from a writing of the Apostle Paul from the, the letter, the book of Ephesians. He was writing this to some other followers of Jesus to help them with their relationships and their habits. Here's the first healthy habit. Be committed to honesty and mutual respect. So these are going to be real practical. We're going to fly through these. Be committed to honesty and mutual respect. And most relationships, they start off, like think about when you're dating, everything, is, you're real respectful. There's no name calling yet. If you're married, it might be a little different now. And you probably did this really well. When you first got together, maybe it's not going so well anymore. As time goes by, our expectations within our relationships, they go unmet. That's when hurt happens. That's when we stop being honest with each other. And that's when disrespect can come into a relationship. And here's why Paul writes, so put away your lies and speak the truth to one another. Because we're all part of one another. So maybe you have a problem with someone. Maybe it's someone you're in a relationship with or someone you work with or maybe it's a boss or a parent or a kid. And you haven't told them. You got a problem with someone, but you haven't told them that you got a problem with them. Maybe you feel like they should just know. And let me say just if you are in a relationship or you have a spouse, let me tell you something about your spouse. They don't know how to read your mind. <laughs> I know. I wish we could. It would make things a lot easier. But they don't know how to read your mind. So we can't just expect that they would know what we're thinking or feeling or want them to do. We actually have to use our words to communicate those things. Can we set appointments with each other to speak the truth? in love and before you think oh i'm gonna set an appointment all right i'm gonna give them a piece of my mind no truth must be accompanied by love here's the next principle and it goes along with what i just said eliminate deadly weapons from your communication now <clears throat> When it comes to our communication, people who have wronged us or things that we need to say to each other. Um, anger is not always wrong. Here's when anger is wrong. When it controls you. Anger is wrong when it controls you. But there is healthy anger um, when you see an injustice and you become angry. That's not wrong. 
But anger is wrong if it controls you. Ephesians 4, 26, again, Paul writing, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Sometimes anger causes us to control, I'm sorry, sometimes anger causes us to attack the person instead of the problem that we're facing. Let me give you some examples of weapons of communication when we're angry. Um, Raising your voice is a deadly weapon. That communicates, I'm trying to intimidate you, to get you to control you. Raising your voice. Here's another one. Silence or withdrawal. That's also a deadly weapon. It communicates disapproval. Remember a little while back I talked about in every relationship there is a gorilla and a turtle. One is always yelling, one is always retreating. Both are unhealthy. Here's another deadly weapon in our communication or relationships, threatening divorce. Don't do it. Don't do it. That communicates fear and manipulation. Uh, How about gross exaggerations? You always, you never. That communicates you believe the worst in them. We've got to learn how to communicate in a healthy way. Those weapons will destroy your relationship, but tools, if we can find the right tools, they will repair. You can tear down your relationship or you can repair and build up. Here's a helpful phrase. Everybody say this. Everybody say this. I is a tool. You is a weapon. Say it. I is a tool. You is a weapon. I is a tool. You is a weapon. Now, I am a tool. That's different. And you might be. But one of the most powerful words of communication for couples is the word I. I feel we should. I hope we can. I'd like us to. I feel loved when you. See how that's more helpful than the you, 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 you're doing it wrong? Yeah. The word you is a weapon. You always, you never, you need to. Okay, here's the next principle. Agree on the timing for having tough conversations. Problems, they don't just go away or get better over time. They go away when we solve them. Many of us, we have problems. We're like, why won't that problem go away? It will go away when we face it and when we solve it. That's why Paul gives us this next bit of advice in Ephesians. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. And some of you are thinking, finally a verse that I've been living by because I stay up all night and fight until it's over. That's not what this means. That's not the advice here. It's saying that anger is a big deal and it needs to be dealt with, but don't let it drive a wedge in your relationship Deal with problems when they come up. Even if you need to say, I know that we're both really emotionally charged right now. Can we set a day and a time to come back and talk about this? Can we, can we set a more healthy time that right now we're really heated? Maybe we come back in an hour or two or tomorrow and sit down and discuss this. Agree on timing for having tough conversations. Don't ambush your spouse or your significant other with a difficult conversation here's another one follow up negative complaints 
with positive solutions. So when you actually do set a time to sit down and talk and work out your differences, follow up negative complaints with positive solutions. The goal in these conversations is not to be right. The goal is to solve the problem. In this very next verse, Paul, he challenges his listeners to not simply give up bad habits, but to replace them with good. Here's what he says. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. You see, anyone can point out a problem. That's the easy part. Anybody here can point out a problem, but mature people are capable of offering real solutions. Are you and I offering real solutions in our disagreements, in our arguments, in our problems? Here's another one. Watch your words and guard your tone. We've all been in an argument with, a, with someone, probably a significant other, where we're arguing, and then they say something. Well, you said, and then they change their voice. When you said, meh, 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 and you're like, I don't sound like that, okay? Or maybe you do for the rest of the day. You just start talking that way. That's what I do. So here's what Ephesians 4.29 says. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Kevin speak. He spoke all about our words and how we can use them to build each other up instead of tearing each other down. Here's another one. Don't air your dirty laundry. And I know we live in a time and a culture and technology and you can jump online and go on social media and you can talk about how terrible your in-laws are, how selfish your spouse is, and you could tell the whole world all kinds of terrible things about the people in your life. Ephesians 4.30, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Slander is when I talk about someone um, falsely behind their back. If you go and you say false things about someone behind their back, that's called slander. You might think, well, I don't do that. Everything I say behind their back is true. (laughs) That's called gossip. That's also a sin. (laughs) Here's one more. Move as quickly as possible towards forgiveness and healing. That flies in the face of our culture right now. Cancel, Cancel them. I don't like something they said. Cancel them. No, what if we were to move as quickly as possible towards forgiveness and healing? If you're a follower of Jesus, I'm not sure we have the cancel option. Let's look at this last verse, Ephesians 4.32. Instead, instead of what? Instead of all those bad habits like the bitterness and the anger and the harsh words and the slander. Instead of all that, be kind to each other tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Here's the important part. Just as God through Christ has forgiven you. For the follower of Jesus, God's forgiveness offered to us is now the standard for our forgiveness to others. Dang it! You're either going to love that or you're going to hate it. God's 
forgiveness of you has now become your expected standard for the forgiveness from you towards others. Crap. That's really hard. Because there's people in my life I don't want to forgive. I feel like they don't deserve it. And maybe they don't. But I am not God. And God has forgiven me. And the expectation set forth by Jesus in Scripture is that I would somehow find it within myself a possibility to forgive them. Let me be clear. Forgiveness does not equal trust. If you forgive someone, it does not mean that you have to trust them again. There is trust that's been broken in our lives that may never be repaired, and that's okay. But to forgive someone most often releases me from the pain that they've caused. I'm kicking them out of my head. Don't let them live in your brain rent-free. Don't let them take up your time and your emotion and continue causing pain throughout the years. Find it within yourself to forgive them and release them. You don't have to be friends. You don't have to trust them. You may not even ever need to speak to them again, but if you can find it somehow to forgive them, you're actually setting yourself free. What relationship in your life needs forgiveness applied to it this week? Some people may have told you it's going to be impossible. That relationship will never be restored. That marriage can never be healed. You will never have your kids speak to you ever again. But we serve a God who is great at bringing things that have once died back to life. Maybe that's a relationship that you have. And I believe that if you pursue God first and love the people around you, anything will be possible in your relationships. 